everyone. Really excited to have my next speaker on the podcast, Will Richmond. He is the founder of Growth Genius, former founder and CEO of Bitmaker as well, which is one of the first web development schools in Canada. And to me, it has been a huge inspiration from a learning perspective. I think when I first met him, I was really astounded by the amount of information that he was able to consume and then share with the rest of the team. And that's definitely a habit that I took upon myself, try to mimic as much as possible and really form the inspiration behind this newsletter and podcast. And so very excited to have him on board. I think one of the biggest things or one of his biggest superpowers, I'd say, is his ability to put together great teams, right? When I think about the talent at Growth Genius and the type of people I've been able to meet as a result, I think a lot of it comes from Will's ability to spot great talent. And yeah, would love, Will, for you to introduce yourself. Again, really excited to have you on the podcast and go through this topic. I think it's very important, especially during a time where there's seemingly a lot of great talent out there, but still pretty hard to build great teams, right? And being able to screen for them perhaps remotely as well. Yeah, thank you, Susan. Really excited to be here. I've, I've been keeping up to date on a lot of the, the interviews of, as of late, and uh, I really appreciate it. Yeah, I think that's probably why we got along so well from the get-go is, you know, the thirst for learning and, and knowledge and, and trying to upskill as much as we can, as quickly as, as quickly as we can. And I think that probably characterizes the team at Growth Genius, just a bunch of kind of learning animals in a way, right? Totally. Um, so it's it, it always makes for an interesting combination of things. Awesome. So I want to go through a few questions, right? And, and really pick your brain around a couple of topics. One of the things that I want to start off with is a lot of the people that you hired at Growth Genius and Bitmaker didn't have a background in sales and education, yet they turned out pretty great at their jobs. And me, I've always wondered, how have you been able to identify hidden talent? How do you make those connections that other people might struggle to make? So I think it's, it's first really important to think about the character attributes or the, the, the traits that make for a very good, you know, whatever position you're hiring for. So let's take like, let's take these sales spots, you know, tenaciousness, empathy, communication abilities, you know, there's a bunch of, there's a core skill set, set of aptitude that you need to have in order to kind of be good at that job. So you look for excellence in roles and responsibilities that are similar to the job that you're hiring. And you have to kind of expand the aperture of who you might be looking for, because obviously the best folks are going to be paid very well. At, at the jobs that you're looking for. And so you have to kind of look for undervalued assets. And the way to spot that is being able to excel at something that would map on quite nicely. But the other part is talking about thinking about the character and values first, then moving to aptitude, then to skill at that particular thing, and then experience last. And that that set of attributes might be in the reverse order than than many hiring managers at a um, at large firms because they're really trying to de-risk themselves. And if someone has ten or fifteen years of experience at a particular thing, you know you can kind of put your hands up and say, "Oh, look at their resume. How how should I have known?" So if you're willing to take a bet on someone early 
because you can see those other things that were just mentioned, you know, you, 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 you don't have to pay, you know, 50% above market to get top talent. Totally. I think that specific phrase around attitude over aptitude over skills and finally experience was definitely a key framework that we used at Growth Genius and, and you know, definitely makes a ton of sense. I think to your point, it's very easy to go the other way around, de-risk yourself, and de-risk the decision, but that's a very selfish motivation, not very team oriented or really benefiting the company because you want to make bets and you know form partnerships with people who are going to grow in the long term. Right? Exactly it. But as a small company, you have to be pretty scrappy. Yeah. And uh, it takes, you know, it takes those kind of outsized bets on on folks that might have not done the job before. Yeah, totally. As a startup, you know, we've both seen the ups and downs of adding people really quickly. How do you think about hiring the next person when you're trying to ramp up quickly? I mean, we've seen some crazy times where we'd almost be adding one, two people every week, sometimes every other week. And it really gets difficult, right? It's not easy to be hiring, having all these great conversations, and at the same time onboarding while also trying to manage a great business. How do you think about those trade-offs? Yeah, so there's, I think you you really have to know what you're looking for and de-risk the job as much as you can before hiring quickly. And so in, in knowing what you're looking for before, you know, some of the key roles at Growth Genius, I interviewed probably 100 to 200 people. And, and you're ultimately trying to develop, you know, good taste, good taste, just like, you know, looking for art, you develop good, great taste by interviewing a lot of folks. So you kind of calibrate really who you think would excel at that position. And then obviously based on past hires, recalibrate. The other thoughts are that uh, around the de-risking part. So before you can move quickly, uh, part of the process is we, we tried to grow uh, you know at least 50% of new hires with a referral. Some hiring managers say that, that wouldn't lead to the right amount of diversity. But when you find A players, folks, you know, really talented folks, really skilled folks, will know other really skilled folks and they'll have had a working relationship with those people. And so you can kind of de-risk it there by, you know, having your, your best team members vouch for the people that they'd like to bring on the team and work with. And then the last part, and you, you can't skip this step, but you have to work on some sort of, so it's like an audition. So work on a, on a pet project and pay that person for their time before you actually kind of get into uh, working with them full time, you know, think of it like dating, got to go on a couple dates and you can't kind of skip that process before you get married. Yeah. I think anytime you do, you almost sacrifice on quality and end up biting yourself more times than not, right? Sometimes you get it right, but I think a lot of times you get it wrong. And I think that last piece, you can get really creative with that, right? It could mean a week long addition, right? Where they, you know, come into the office, work out of the office, it could mean, to your point, a project, right, that they'd actually do in their job. You pay them for it at market rate. And, and, you know, the cost of hiring the wrong person is certainly greater than a small project or a week's worth of work, right? And it, on both sides, right, not just for the company, but even for the individual, right, everyone has opportunity cost. And so it's really important to get creative there, really accommodate 
the needs of each people. Some people may not be able to take a week off and work at a company. Other people may not be able to work on a project, especially if they have a family and whatnot. So finding different ways to accommodate around that, but being able to kind of allow both sides to de-risk the relationship is something that I think a lot of startups could and should do. And I think a lot of larger companies should look into as well. Totally. The, the cost of that wrong hire, you know, you're talking about wasted time, uh, morale, maybe brings down the quality of, of uh, the, the standard of bar of work, you know, it, there's, and, and no one likes to admit that they've made a mistake. So people will live with bad hires, you know, myself included, I'll put myself at the top of the list for six to 12 months when they know after month two that this was, this was a mistake really hard to reverse that decision because of, you know, the emotional ties to that person within the team and, you know, et cetera. Yeah. Not being afraid to hire on contract as well. I think, I mean, the difference between a full-time role and a contract role isn't too different, to be honest. I think the obligations are still pretty similar, but I think it does help set the expectation as far as being able to be clear that, Okay, this is, you know, somewhere like you somewhere where you need to perform, need to be able to show your value in order to make this kind of a longer term arrangement. And again, even if it means you pay slightly higher in a contract, perhaps give up less equity or something like that, that might be a way to go, assuming that, you know, the company has the funds for it. But again, finding different ways to make this a more meaningful short term experiment before going into a longer term arrangement is uh, definitely something to explore. Uh, another question, I mean, building on this that I have is how do you balance, again, the speed of hiring and versus quality? I think when you're in that ramp up phase, you're looking to hire as quickly as possible. On the flip side, there's obviously the trade-off with quality. So how do you, how do you think about that? Yeah. So if, you, if you've gone through your networks and you've, you're doing a pet project or you're doing some work and dating before, then on the ramp up quickly, you really need to know that the math is going to work. So on a salesperson, you know, for a BDR, you need to know what their expected outcomes are and how that translates into the larger system. So if you know what the ramp expectations are and then how that translates to the account executive and how many deals that they need to close and then for your, um, you know, we customer success team, client growth, was really about can we keep clients for long enough and do it profitable enough clip that uh, the whole system works. Right. So once if you know the math and you've de-risked it, then it's you, know, you obviously have a couple buckets of hiring. So you have like sourcing and recruiting, you have interviewing, you have the compensation side of things, and then you have the onboarding. And you kind of have to have each piece working in it in its infancy. And so you basically have all four of those pieces and you have a re- reasonable process that's de-risked, then, then, you're, then you're ready to kind of ramp up quickly. Um, that being said, try not to. <laughs> try not to. I think what it, someone said, most, most companies dive indigestion over, you know, being, being eaten. So like a lot of people, just a lot of companies fail because they try and grow too quickly. But it depends on the market. You know, what, what, what market are you in? How quickly is it moving? If you can niche yourself and kind of cove off, you know, your, your area of the market, you don't need to grow as quickly. And these, these companies take a long time to, to bake. So, you know, 
don't rush that early market and then move into to adjacent markets afterwards. Yeah. So what I'm trying to say is try and go go slower than you think. But when when you do have a, a good candidate that's in the market and you know that they're going to go quickly because they have multiple job offers or X, Y, and Z, uh, people lose attention their attention quite quickly. So you've got to be able to move quite quickly as soon as you know you have the right person. And it's a, it's a lot of kind of gut feel across the team. Yeah, I think a couple of things I would take away from that is a always have conversations, right? Even if you're not actively hiring, I think it's important to maintain an open channel for candidates always. And then whenever you do have the right candidate, having the ability or flexibility rather to move quickly on that candidate, very important. I think the best candidates often come that way, right? And anytime you slow down, uh, you know, everyone gets second thoughts, right? And that's where you kind of lose great candidates as well. What are some of the techniques that you've used in the past to hire people who aren't looking for a job? And I mean, and that's, that's uh, 90% of the best uh, talent is that they're in market, they're doing what they love, or they, they're at a great company, and they might not be doing or might not be happy. And, and that's kind of the, the secret is just like sales, there's this kind of this thing called the window of dissatisfaction. So let's take buying new shoes. As soon as you buy a new pair of shoes, you're probably not going to leave. But as the shoes get you know, more tattered, eventually you're going to start looking for shoes. And then all of a sudden, you're going to compare eight different shoes to each other and you're going to pick one. If you get into a conversation with a candidate before they're comparing eight different sets of shoes, you've got a much higher likelihood of kind of negotiating a good on good terms. So it's a, like you're saying, always be recruiting and then act like a sniper. The best startups are like snipers and they go out and they pick people. So, you know, we talked about before about stack ranking the best folks for the job, for every job description across yeah. the whole team. So put together a list of 10 to 30 people that you think are interesting and then start at, start at number 15 or number 10 and work your way up the list. Yeah. yeah, I think that last piece around working your way up the list versus down, also very important because intuitively, we would want to work our way down the list, right? We want to go after the best candidates first. And that is often a recipe for disaster because you learn so many things in your first few conversations that allow you to have a really great 10th conversation or a really great 15th conversation. Totally. Exactly. It's all practice, right? We're yeah. all... And when you have, once you have the conversation 15 times, the same conversation 15 times, you're going to get pretty good at it. Yeah. Like, like these interviews, right? I notice a market improvement every interview you do. So totally. It's cool to see. Totally. Exactly. How do you assess a candidate's profile? Right? You know, you're, you're talking to hundreds of people looking at resumes, sometimes not even looking at resumes, just looking at their LinkedIn profile. What are some of the common red flags that you see? And on the flip side, what are some of the highlights or the you know really key signs that you identify as far as being able to say, okay, this is a really good candidate. Let's talk to him or her. Yeah. What, what side do you want to start on first? The red flags or the... the so with red, red flags first. Okay. Yeah. So obvious ones are jumping around maybe for the wrong reasons. So if, if you can't figure out why someone's going from A to B to Z and it's happening quite quickly and there's not like kind of a set of logic through it, 
you know, that that's kind of a red red flag number one, because either either the company is not able to see that this person is not a good fit, or they're able to kind of get in at, at just about any company. So they might be a very good interviewer. The second one is and like not it's, it's title inflation. So it's it basically, you know, really large titles where there might not have been the substance to back it up or the the improvement in the company in that area. So if I if I'm like the chief product officer of the northern hemisphere at a at a little startup and the product isn't great, then I, I know that's that's a huge red flag. Yeah. I think sure. the, uh, what other red flags kind of come to mind? I, I think in terms of red flags, to your point, title inflation or any misrepresentation of their work. I think a lot of times when you're trying to stretch the truth too far to the point where you're crafting a very different story from what reality is, uh, that that to me is a red flag. A lot of times, like, you know, everyone has a unique story and it may not be apparent on paper, but if they're able to explain it, then I'm willing to hear it out. But a lot of times when you're stretching the truth drastically, that's something that I, I kind of look down upon. I think that that's basically it, though. I think the other piece that I would say is anytime someone has stayed very long in their position, that to me is also a red flag, right? If you don't, kind of get promoted within your role if you don't do lateral moves and you've stayed, say, four or five years in a specific role, maybe even three years, depending on the role itself. To me, I, I start to question, okay, is this person really interested in improving as an individual, right? And it, and it really depends on the role. I think some roles, three to five years could make sense, but most roles, especially in the startup space, you don't stay in the same role for that long. Right, either the company grows past you, right, or you grow past the company, right, or ideally you grow with the company. But you don't have, you rarely have this position where someone at a startup or someone at a growing company stays in the same position for an incredibly long time, and that to me uh, raises flags as well. Totally, that's yeah, that's exactly it. You know, yeah. and that's on the flip side. So, what are, what are you looking for? in in truly excellent folks is is folks that you know quickly get promoted but that's because they often go really deep on the subjects that they're they're working on and you know when someone has like a deep intense focus on something you get you get really good at it really quickly and all of a sudden you kind of just get promoted quite quickly so rapid promotion but it doesn't have to be just promotions like if if there's any kind of really deep interests where they can talk at um, at depth about a, a subject, you know, that shows the capacity to build that deep interest in in the thing that you'd, you'd like help with. Yeah, that that's a really important point because a lot of times people feel like you need that title progression in order to improve or it needs to happen in your day-to-day -day job. But that that to me is where most people look. And I think the underrated component is when you're able to spot talent by looking at people who are able to rapidly progress in anything, right? Even if it's fitness, even if it's you know reading, even if it's creating a newsletter, right? It could literally be anything. It could be music. I think being able to go from a novice to a relative expert 
right? Um, in fairly quick progression, show that progression, ideally share it in a way that other people consume it, can consume it. I think when, you, when you're able to put that package together, no matter what area of interest that may be, that really gets my interest because I know that if they, like you said, have the capacity to build and have the capacity to grow, all I need to know is whether they're interested in growing in the area that I'm looking to hire for, right? Because they've shown the capacity to grow. They're interested in the area I'm looking to hire for. Now we have a really serious candidate in my mind. Uh, yeah, that's, that's exactly it. You know, you know, and you touched on something interesting as well is like, do I think that this person could be deeply interested in the position that I'm hiring for? If, if they've already worked in that position for a number of years and they show continued interest, then that's obvious. But when you're pulling someone into a slightly new position or you know that that role will grow quickly and they're going to have to get interested in other things, it's like, well, you know, are they, this gets into the subtlety and nuance of the thing, but are they going to be interested in the series of things that they're likely going to move from and into? You know, are they, if, if it's an engineer, okay, they're a great programmer, but do they want to manage? Right. Do you want, do you want them to manage? You know, what, what level of progression are they, are they really looking for? A lot of people like to be individual contributors. Yeah. And, you know, I, I find it sometimes like a little bit frustrating being superficial at a kind of a bunch of roles. Like I really like to go deep on one thing and, you know, so it's, it's part of the managing, managing, you know, job description. But the thing that keeps me going is I really like people. Yeah. You really like people and you really want them to succeed. Then, then you can give up the going deep, right? If that need is, is more than the going deep need, then you're in good shape and you can be a great manager. Yeah, totally. And yeah, I think that's a great point. I think not just looking for the skills that you immediately need at hand, but understanding that, especially again, in a growing company or a growing team for that matter, looking for skills that the adjacent skills that they'll need to grow into, right? And growth is not necessarily managing people either, right? Growth could be taking on larger responsibilities within the entire value stack or process, right? So being able to like kind of be that switch player Right, and move into other pieces of the puzzle just to contribute because a lot of times circumstances change, right? And the needs of a company, needs of a team change. And being able to, relatively speaking, be a generalist a lot of times is really important. I think I can't, you know, say the number of times where, you know, especially in a startup, people have had to change roles, kind of play different hats as the needs of the company change, needs of the time, week, day changed. Yeah, the, the only spot that I that I often don't want generalists are in the engineering side of things. You 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 really can't fake it, and you really kind of have to make sure that those folks go deep. But the rest of the kind of social uh, skills, more soft softer uh, skill roles, marketing, sales, customer success, it's good to be able to roam. Yeah, totally. What are your thoughts on diversity? I know you mentioned that you know this kind of flies in the face of hiring through referrals. But how do you think about diversity? Because that's something that's tricky to figure out, especially when you don't have a diverse group of candidates applying to jobs, which most of the time we don't, right? How do you think about building diversity into the team? Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say probably two things that might be a little bit controversial. 
Sure. So initially, I think you want almost zero diversity. And another the other thing that's that's controversial, but I think it has to be true, is you really have to like the ten the first ten people, because you're you're eat you're eating, sleeping, and spending every waking hour with these people. So in that question uh, around diversity, is I think the best companies are built out of a monoculture initially. They're kind of like uh, zealots, you know, if you're putting together a religion or you're putting together kind of a, a weird social movement of some sort. And that's, that's all companies really are a collection of people that are going to push an idea and or technology solution, a product, whatever right. service, you know, as far and as fast as they can. Initially, I think the values need to be the same. And so when I say diversity, I just mean that the values need to be the same. This the one around diversity where you definitely need diversity is the skill sets need to be very complementary, often wildly different. And that's why so many founding teams break up is because they all are uh, business backgrounds and they all feel like they can do the other person's job well. Yep. And so there's not this mutual respect and mutual need to work together. You know, there's overlap and and things get muddled. So. When, but out of that 10, you want to be as diverse as humanly possible. Past that 10, you, you want, you know, you want to pick people that you don't like, you know, you, because what you're really looking for is people that have strong opposing opinions that will challenge you on all of your assumptions to you. So you get to the best answer. And that's the whole concept. Ray Dalio's ideal idea meritocracy, right? Is like, you want the best ideas to win, but the, that conflict, you can only survive strong conflict after like the embryo has, has baked. Uh, once you have some structure, then it can survive stronger confrontational blows between people. And so adversity is encouraged yeah. at, a, at a certain point. But before then, you can't really have that. You kind of have to have this mono direction. And, and a lot of, so everyone's running and rowing in the same direction because it's so difficult to get a business off the ground. Yeah. I think during that product market fit stage, what you're essentially saying is the trade-off between diversity and focusing on kind of that monoculture that really, ex, like having that execution focus, you really want to you know make that trade-off towards having that execution focus. I think a lot of times the analogy that I've heard someone use is you're building a car it's easy to talk about the seatbelt, but you know, the seatbelt doesn't really matter when you don't even have an engine, right? And I right. think, right. you know, during that you know sub ten employee phase, you're really building the engine, right? You're not worried about the seats, you're not worried about the bells and whistles. You're really focused on kind of the core mechanics, unit economics of the business. And so during that time, you're just trying to focus on what's core to the business. And you know, sometimes diversity. At least most times, diversity could fly in the face of that, right? I think um, it, it could. It's a trade-off that you need to make. And you know, however, as you grow past that ten employee stage, and you know that number might be changing. I think you know sometimes over time, I think that number will get smaller and smaller. I think each person can be that much more productive with today's tools and contracting work and all that kind of stuff out there. But generally speaking, once you pass that ten employee stage, diversity does become very important and often necessary because if you don't like too much of that monoculture could also kill you. Yeah. Being able to make that transition 
also very difficult. Also, it needs to be very intentional, right? Because, you know, once you do have that embryo, you're very used to kind of having that high execution, high focus, moving along very fast. As a leader, you need to start making that trade-off. It's like, okay, now let's get tested out a bit, right? Let's, let's intentionally go into battles knowing that, you know, parts of the team may not even enjoy these battles, right? They rather would continue to focus, continue to execute and be able to grow that way because that's where what progress has been defined up until then, right? And I think that that's a really important point. And then obviously diversity and skill set. I think the more complementary the skills are, the better always. And I think, you know, as, as you're building that core team, looking for as different as possible skills could be important because it's very easy to, like you said, think that you can do someone else's job or at least have an opinion on someone else's job, which ultimately reduces the team's focus on what truly matters, which is getting shit done. And, and that, that can always be a roadblock as to how you get to the next step. Totally and grow as an organization, grow as a team, and ultimately grow as an individual. Yeah, well said, well said. Awesome. I mean, to wrap things up, what are some of the resources? I know you're, you're a massive reader that have helped you become an expert in hiring talent. Uh, yeah, so I'll start with what got, got me on to startups in the first place, Paul Graham's articles, a particular article called Start, uh, where he talks about hiring animals. And what does he mean by that? He means, you know, people who take their jobs so seriously that they, uh, they, uh, it's almost off-putting, right? You know, it's a little bit scary. Another, another set of articles or resources are Sam Altman's blog of Y Combinator as well. And, and specifically, How to Hire is one of the, the blog posts. And he goes through all of the mechanics of early stage hiring. One of my favorites is How Google Works. And uh, there's actually an entire section dedicated to hiring called Hiring is the Most Important Thing a Manager Can Do. The last two are Principles by Ray Dalio because he kind of talks more about a lot of the intangibles that are precursors to success in terms of character and the way that people think. And if, if you don't have your machinery kind of organized up top, and you're not going to succeed in the long run, despite how skilled you might be. So that's kind of more a long-term perspective on what makes great contributors, great team members, great leaders, et cetera. And then the last one, this is more kind of a fun one. I don't know if you've, you've seen it, but uh, Jodorowsky's Dune. Have you heard of I that? Haven't. No, I haven't. Okay. So that one is a documentary about a filmmaker that was trying to put together the movie Dune, I think back in the eighties or nineties. And he, he spent a good, good deal of time recruiting, you know, top tier talent from all over the world. Like I think he, at one point he got Mick Jagger, you know, to, to play a part of her. It was the best of the best. And he goes on this epic quest to, to pull together an all-star team. I think had the budget or a couple of circumstances being different, he would have absolutely crushed it. So right. I think, Very I think, cool. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Putting together a movie is a, is a good analogy. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. I mean, this has been obviously an incredibly useful, hopefully helpful conversation for a lot of founders, a lot of hiring managers and people who want to become hiring managers as well. I think you shed a lot of light into some of the things that we should be looking for. So 
really grateful to have you on and talk about this. I, I view you as an expert in this space, and I've certainly learned a lot from you and your approach when it comes to hiring. So again, thank you. And yeah, we'd love to have a few conversations. Thank, thanks for having me on the on the podcast. I, you know, I'm an avid fan now, um, and and love the blog. So I'm I'm looking forward to you know what comes next, and uh, you know the, your take and your perspective on on startups. Awesome, uh, it's cool. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Awesome.